Welcome back. On with the show. When we left off, we were involved in a bit of whimsy with Prime Minister Mackenzie King back in 1925. But unlike U.S. presidents, our prime ministers can stay around for a long time. And so it comes as no surprise to most Canadians to know that Mr. King was still prime minister in 1939 when the Second World War broke out. His sense of whimsy had long left him. It was an interesting time, not unlike today, when nations were again being asked to take in refugees from more torn and less democratic countries than ourselves. To his shame and to ours, Prime Minister King was not up to the task of seeing the necessity of allowing refugee claimants. Brings to mind a few other political leaders who shall remain nameless. Yet, like Nellie McClung and Agnes McPhail, there were other politicians and activists who were not prepared to let such shameful and undemocratic acts pass without notice. One of them was a little-known politician, not often remembered nowadays. His name was Abraham Heaps. He was one of the few Jewish members of Parliament in Canada, and so he rose that day in the House of Commons after an entire boatload of German Jews had been turned away at the border. He had this to say. During the 22 years that I have been in public life, 13 of which have been spent in this chamber, it has been always my aim to try to bring about a closer understanding and more harmonious relationship among the various component parts of our population, not merely of Winnipeg, but of the whole of the Dominion of Canada. I regret to say I have found that one of the main obstacles to that natural development of our people has been the fact that there are many politicians in the West, as there probably are in other parts of Canada, who are too ready to try to obtain political advantage by exploiting racial feelings and misunderstandings. I have always tried to avoid that in my public life. During the past few days, there has been raised in this House the question of immigration and the question of refugee. Representing, as I do, a constituency made up of a mixture of races, although it is preponderantly Anglo-Saxon, I feel I should be remiss in my duty if I did not make some statement with regard to these important questions, affecting as they do many peoples and touching principles with which I think most of the honourable members of this House are concerned. So much has been said on this question of immigration that the facts, I believe, ought to be known and given consideration and prominence. Certain honourable members <coughs> have been speaking of immigration and refugees as if they were one and the same problem with the same meaning and the same implications. There is great difference between immigration and the problem of refugees. No one, to my knowledge, has ever asked in these times for an influx of immigrants in the ordinary sense of the word. No one has even asked that the country should be flooded with refugees. In matters of this importance, people should not make rash statements without ascertaining the facts, nor should they deal in generalities. What are the facts? Early last year, a delegation of members of this House met the Prime Minister, Mr. Mackenzie King, and discussed the question with him. Subsequently, a subcommittee of the Cabinet was appointed to consider the matter, and a number of the members of this House had an interview with the subcommittee. What the delegation requested was that a reasonable number of refugees of all races and creeds be allowed to come forward to parts of Canada where it was considered most desirable that they should settle. The number suggested at the time was 5,000 men, women and children, approximately 1,000 to 1,200 families. All the members of the subcommittee at the time appeared to me to be sympathetic, and the members of the delegation present were prepared to give proper undertakings that none of the refugees would become a public charge. The number for which entry was requested was extremely small in view of the need, but we felt that our government should show its sympathy in the matter and to permit refugees to enter Canada and be freed from political, religious or racial persecution was in strict accord with historic liberal principles.
But a new phase has now been injected into the problem. Everyone who has kept himself informed as to recent events cannot help extending sympathy to the refugees for the plight of which they find themselves, whatever their race or creed may be. Never in the history of mankind have human beings been treated so barbarously as they are being treated at the present time by fascist powers. Men, women, and children, families which have been rooted for centuries in the land in which they lived, have been deprived and robbed of everything they possessed in order to leave the country. Their only crime being that their racial origin or religious beliefs were distasteful to the powers that be or their de democratic principles unwelcome in totalitarian states. The pitiful plight of all these people has aroused international concern. Almost every civilized country has definitely taken sympathetic action. Canada, as yet, has not done so, and I should like to see her take her rightful place with other democratic countries and show her sympathy in a practical manner. Great Britain, France, Holland, Australia, and many other countries are giving asylum to tens of thousands of refugees, and in no place, to my knowledge, have they been a burden to the governments that have received them. In regard to employment, it might be well to mention that lately, in England, 11,000 refugees had given employment to 15,000 Englishmen. Speaking now with the knowledge of the conditions, and not from mere hearsay, I say that if our government had shown the same sympathetic attitude on this question, the same conditions could have obtained here. May I point out that the Right Honourable R.B. Bennett, speaking in St. John, New Brunswick, only on Thursday last, said that we owed a debt of gratitude to those refugees and that we should accept our quota of them. There is in this country, as a whole, a very large body of opinion to the effect that the government should extend the hand of brotherhood and friendship to these people. It is they who have been the first victims of fascist tyranny and oppression. Who knows who will be the next? I make this plea on broad humanitarian grounds, not for any one sect or creed, but for all victims of persecution. It pained me last week to hear honorable members deny the plea of the refugee to the right of asylum. It seems so inhuman. I am in a sense proud to have this opportunity of making such a plea and in a humble way to follow the teaching of ancient and modern religious thought so beautifully expressed in the words, do unto others as ye would have do unto you. And if I may be permitted to add one further quotation familiar to us all, let us if possible have peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Strangely, those words were spoken in 1939, and yet some might argue they are still poignant in this populist age where the words immigrant and refugee have again become the test of our Canadian goodwill versus less noble, if not fascist, sympathies. Of course, it's the right of every Canadian to complain about their politicians, their government, and especially bureaucrats charged with carrying out government policies. Nothing unites Canadians more than trading stories about the sins of commission and sins of omission that apparently are done daily at Canadian government offices. It wouldn't be Canada if we didn't acknowledge one of our favourite sayings when we ourselves do a second-rate job. Good enough for government work. But rarely does anyone rise to the giddy, satiric heights of Eugene Forsey when he had occasion to have tremendous fun chiding some federal bureaucrats for some obvious foibles. Listen to this letter that he wrote in 1954 when he noticed that a certain bureaucrat had decided to name, rename Canada's original July 1st celebration Dominion Day to something other than Dominion Day. Dear Sir, the Department of External Affairs explains that its use of the term Canada Day for Dominion Day is for external consumption for convenience because the poor foreigners wouldn't know what Dominion Day meant. It means very little abroad. I suppose the French, when they talk to foreigners, call the 14th of July France Day 
and the Americans call the 4th of July United States Day. I hope the Department of External Affairs will be careful in the future if it has occasion to speak of June the 24th, not to call it Saint-Jean-Baptiste Day, but Quebec Day. Saint-Jean-Baptiste might mean very little abroad. The principle seems to be that if foreigners don't understand any of our legal terms for our own institutions, we don't explain what they mean, we change the names. Perhaps this accounts for the Canada Yearbook's funny work with Ministry and House of Commons and Parliament. Henceforth, our Parliament can be National Assembly when we're talking to Frenchmen, and Congress when we're talking to Americans or Central or South Americans, and Supreme Soviet when we're talking to Russians. And of course, the foreigners would understand better if we called our Secretary of State for External Affairs Foreign Minister and our provinces States. The Department of External Affairs explains also that Dominion Day could refer to any Commonwealth country. It certainly couldn't refer to India, which deliberately and by law struck out Dominion from its legal designation and substituted Republic. That is the honest, manly, democratic way to make such changes, but some people prefer to sneak them into telephone books and yearbooks and miscellaneous official documents when they think no one is looking. So the poor foreigner reading an official bulletin of the Canadian Department of External Affairs and seeing the heading Observance of Dominion Day Abroad and finding the word Canada and Canadian 25 times in a page and a half might have thought the department was talking about Ceylon or Pakistan or the United Kingdom or Australia or South Africa or New Zealand. I hope foreigners will be pleased by the department's estimate of their intelligence. If, as your editorial suggests, it is civil servants who are doing this sort of thing on their own, it is high time that they were reminded that they are not entitled to repeal Acts of Parliament. It is not their business to impose on the public their own personal preference of this, that or any other term or their own opinion of foreigners' IQs. It is their business to obey the law. We need, in Canada, more of the spirit of the Englishman who, whenever he writes a letter to a civil servant, ends with, You have the honour to be, sir, my obedient servant. Eugene Forsey. Senator Forsey like Lady Aberdeen, was truly a force of nature, and we benefit greatly when such folks keep a sharp and satiric eye on the major and minuscule maneuvers of our government. Of course, there are times when we expect our government officials, be they politicians or bureaucrats, to show more than a little backbone, to fight back, as it were, if only to defend our fundamental Canadian values. And certainly there is no better example of such political chutzpah then our next item. On February 15, 1965, Canada unfurled for the first time its now 54-year-old flag. But the fight to get us that flag was not an easy one. Some would say tougher than Theodore Roosevelt's charge up San Juan Hill, or maybe even the rising of the stars and stripes on Iwo Jima. Luckily for us all, we had Lester Mike Pearson leading the charge as Prime Minister, himself a First World War veteran and no pushover when it came to playing Daniel in a Den of Lions. Only this time the Lions happened to be in Winnipeg for a convention of the Royal Canadian Legion. Mr. Chairman, honoured guests and members of the Royal Canadian Legion, I am honoured to be with you tonight as a veteran, as a member of the Legion and as Prime Minister. I am proud to have witnessed your opening ceremonies and am deeply moved by them. I congratulate most warmly all who participated in your impressive colour ceremony and in conceiving this visual act of remembrance. I wish all Canadians could witness it. Uh, when it became known that I was going to have the honour of opening this 20th Legion Convention, I got a good deal of advice as to what I should discuss or not discuss. There was one compelling subject, of course, which I had to refer to, 
national unity, and certain problems which affect that unity. For instance, federal-provincial relations within our confederation. On this subject, I will say only this. The provinces have new problems and greater responsibilities and must have, among other things, the financial resources to deal with them. The provincial governments will play, I believe, an increasing important part in our national progress. But this need not be, and must not be, at the expense of the federal government. In our system, the federal government must remain strong in authority, resources, and leadership. I do not consider that I was chosen to preside over its decline or its dissolution, and I do not intend to do so. I do intend, however, to do everything I can to maintain the closest cooperation with the provinces inside a confederation which must remain strong and united. There is one subject which I was advised not to mention at all, the flag. That advice, of course, was well meant. It was also impossible to accept. Members of the Legion are aware of my government's commitments made by our party some years ago to ask Parliament, to ask Parliament, to decide on a distinctive Canadian flag within a certain period of time. For my part, I am very much aware of the Legion Executive's current attitude towards government policy on this subject. This mutual awareness of our attitudes, I believe, precludes any possibility that I should appear before you tonight and attempt to dodge the flag issue. After all, you are men who know what it means to go into battle. So, I intend to talk briefly but frankly about this issue, to put my own feelings, my beliefs, my judgment squarely and honestly before you. You would expect me to do this, and I believe it is my duty. I expect dissent. I also respect it. The question of a national flag, however, is only part of the larger question of national unity, which I have already mentioned. There is unease and division in Canada today which is a threat to unity, and this, ironically, at a time when our country is admired, respected, and envied throughout the world. The only anti-Canadians I know of are inside our own borders. When I went overseas in 1915, I had as comrades on my section men whose names were Cameron, Kimura, English, Bledenstein, De Chapin, O'Shaughnessy, We didn't fall in or fall out as Irish Canadians, French Canadians, Dutch Canadians, Japanese Canadians. We wore the same uniform with the same maple leaf badge and we were proud to be known as Canadians, to serve as Canadians and to die, if that had to be, as Canadians. I wish our country had more of that spirit today, of unity, togetherness and resolve the spirit that was shown by Canadians in time of war when the survival of our country was at stake. Well, the survival of our country as a united and strong federal state is at stake today. What we need is a patriotism that will put Canada ahead of its parts, that will think more of our future destiny than our past mistakes, that rejects emphatically the idea that politically, We are, or should become, a federation of two associated states, some kind of pre-war Austria-Hungary. We should have none of such separatism, or of petty, narrow nationalism of any kind. I am a Canadian, very proud to be one, but this does not make me less proud of my British heritage or my Irish origins. It makes me all the more anxious to bring that inheritance to the service of my country. So it would be if I were of another race and spoke another language. I am a Canadian who speaks English. There are millions of others who speak French and have constitutional rights and privileges as French-speaking Canadians which must be respected and recognized. There are also others, and they are an increasingly important segment of our population, who, while they may speak one of the two official languages, also have an ancestral language which they use, traditions and a culture of which they are proud, 
and which are neither French nor Anglo-Saxon. But we are all, or should be, Canadians and unhyphenated, with pride in our nation and its citizenship, pride in the symbols of that citizenship. The flag is one such symbol. For Canada, it has changed as our country has grown from colony to self-governing dominion to sovereign independence to a nation respected among nations. Canada made this change by peaceful evolution, gradually and in a way that did not weaken the bonds with the mother country. That phase of our political evolution is now completed. Our ties to the mother country do not now include any trace of political subordination. They are ties of affection, of tradition, and respect. As a Canadian, I don't want them destroyed or weakened. But they have changed. And the symbols of Canada have also changed with them. This is an inevitable process. In World War I, the flag that flew for Canadian soldiers overseas was the Union Jack. In World War II, in January 1944, the Red Ensign came officially on the scene. In, in World War II... In World War II, in January 1944, the Red Ensign came officially on the scene, though we sometimes forget. It's all right, Mr. Chairman, this is a veterans' meeting, and as Harry Truman once said, if you can't stand the heat, keep out of the kitchen. But we do sometimes forget the flag designated for the first Canadian forces overseas and presented as such to General McNaughton on his departure from Canada for Europe was one with three joined red maple leaves predominant on it. And I believe, as sincerely as some of you might believe in another design, I believe that today a flag designed around the maple leaf will symbolize and be a true reflection of the new Canada. Today there are five million or more Canadians whose tradition is not inherited from the British Isles, but who are descendants of the original French founders of our country. There are another five million or more who have come to Canada from other faraway lands whose heritage is neither British nor French. I believe that a Canadian flag, as distinctive as the maple leaf in the Legion badge, will bring them all closer, bring all these Canadians closer to us of British stock and make us all better and more united Canadians. Would such a change mean any disrespect for the Union Jack or its rejection from our history? No, I would not agree to that. I have served under the Union Jack in war, and I have lived under it in peace. I have seen it flying above the smoke and fire and crashing bombs in London's Blitz. I have seen it flying proudly in some desperate times in an earlier war. I know it stands for freedom under law, justice, and the dignity of man, for the glorious history of a brave breed of men. The Union Jack should be flown in Canada, not as our national flag, but as a symbol of our membership in the Commonwealth of Nations and of our loyalty to the crowd. Lester B. Pearson, third from left, serving during the First World War in taking this position, I know there are others, and it's quite clear tonight, there are others who disagree longly, honestly, and deeply with me. Such an issue is bound to raise strong emotions. Symbols. Symbols have a deep emotional meaning. That is why they help to make a nation great, help to inspire and nourish loyalty, patriotism, and devotion among those who make up the nation. Well, well, we have the right in this free country to disagree, thank God. And we also have the right to express our point of view and to have it listened to. And so, an emotional reaction is roused when there is any suggestion that old symbols should be discarded or adopted to new conditions and new needs. 
You will recall, I'm sure, the Great Legion debate just a few years ago, in 1960, I think it was, when you were choosing a new Legion badge. You will remember the arguments put forward in defense of your executive's decision on that badge. As described by your then-president, Mr. Justice Woods, it was correct, according to heraldry, was distinctive and embodied the right symbolism to represent those things the Legion stood for. It was strictly your own and could not be confused with the badge of any other organization. Its central dominant feature was the maple leaf. Writing about this central symbol, Mr. Justice Woods said at the time, consideration was given to some other form of emblem to represent Canada. As a matter of fact, a number of those who have criticized the badge asserted that the maple leaf was not a good Canadian symbol. Your council, however, and here he was referring to your executive council, were of the opinion that it was a widely accepted Canadian symbol. This certainly is true in Europe. Our troops wore it on their caps and uniforms in the First World War. It appears on the flag of the Canadian Army. It appears on our coat of arms. It appears on the shields of our provinces. Mr. Justice Wood then added, when it was pointed out to us that it was improper to mutilate the Union Jack by placing the maple leaf over it, we did not see how we could properly carry this on in the new badge, so we removed the Union Jack and this left the gold maple leaf. We decided to change its color to red. We put a white background so it would stand out, and this in conjunction with the blue on the Legion scroll. I'm, I'm, talking, I'm talking about the Legion badge, and in the case of your new badge... So it is. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, I thought you were all ladies and gentlemen. This is our honoured guest, invited here by you. Surely the Royal Canadian Legion has more courtesy and dignity than that. You may do all of this next week if you wish to, but leave it tonight. You will recall also that the suggestion made at the time that the question of your new batch should be determined by referendum throughout your membership was rejected by the executive as impractical. As in the case of your new badge, so it is with any question of changing symbols. It asks a lot of human nature to expect ready acceptance of something that is going to alter that which is venerated and has been for long honoured by so many. Any suggestion for change is bound to provoke strong criticism as well as support. This is all part of the democratic process. We who are elected to serve Canada in Parliament owe those who elect us more than the advocacy of non-controversial ideas. We owe Canada our best judgment, and we fail Canada if we fail to exercise that judgment or if we pass our responsibility for judgment back to the electors who sent us to Parliament. I believe most sincerely that it is time now for Canadians to unfurl a flag that is truly distinctive and truly national in character. As Canadian as the maple leaf, which should dominate the flag, a flag easily identifiable as Canada's. No one would deny that we have a responsibility to the past, but we have also a greater responsibility to the present and to the future. Moreover, our responsibility to the past will be best fulfilled by being true to its real substance and meaning. May I quote the words of Premier Stanfield of Nova Scotia in this connection on 6th April last. Surely, however, it is not necessarily patriotic for me to insist that something I value highly must be adopted as a national symbol if it is objectionable as a national symbol to a large number of Canadians. Surely the Canadian thing for us to do is to find symbols which are mutually acceptable. Let us emphasize what we have in common. Surely we can have a national anthem and a flag that unites Canada. In the same spirit, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce not long ago adopted the following resolution. 
that the Parliament of Canada formally adopt and authorize a distinctive national flag because, as the resolution said, a distinctive national flag would be a strong, unifying influence consistent with the status of full nationhood. But I want to add this, ladies and gentlemen, that while I am concerned about this whole question of national symbols, national anthem, national flag, and what they mean to our country, I am even more concerned with making Canada the kind of country with freedom, economic security, social justice, and opportunity for all over which we will be proud to have our flag fly. People are more important than emblems. Pearson prevailed. We got our flag, and if you remember what Arthur Meehan once said about those maple leaf trees over the Canadian graves at Vimy Ridge, you can understand why many members of the Royal Canadian Legion now well up with heartbreaking emotion every time they salute that old red maple leaf. For the rest of us, it's also a reminder never to underestimate the steely determination of some of our Canadian Prime Ministers. Yes, we all like to call them disappointing nitwits on occasion, but there are nitwits, and if history is any judge, we never, ever let them forget their mistakes, never mind their accomplishments. Indeed, Canadians have a certain appetite for doing difficult things, all the while hearing unpleasant truths about themselves. It's probably our most unique trait. Unlike Americans, we're not big fans of believing in Disneyland, nor the American dream, nor are we even that crazy about waving our flag on Canada Day. We tend to be quite content just watching the parade pass by, if not talking quietly about what work still needs to be done. Nobody who's a true Canadian ever thought they lived in a perfect world, or a perfect country, or had a perfect prime minister, or a perfect government. We know there are plenty of things that need fixing, and we know that sometimes the fixes being proposed, well, they fall short, or as we like to say, they are just second rate. Good, but no cigar. Take that famous day in June 1990, when Prime Minister Brian Mulroney's Herculean effort to push through his Meech-like accord fell apart with one vote in one province. It belonged to Elijah Harper, an Aboriginal leader in Manitoba MLA, who refused to give unanimous consent. He just couldn't bring himself to vote for Prime Minister Mulroney's accord, which to hear some people talk was going to solve all our problems, if not put a chicken in every pot. Well, not according to Mr. Harper. And here's why, in as much as George Erasmus eloquently explains it. At the time, he was head, the head of the Assembly of First Nations and had also, like Mike Pearson at the Winnipeg Legion, helped to quell the armed standoff at Oka, Quebec, only months before. Last summer, Native people in this country took a very firm stand against the Meech Lake Accord. It was not a stand against Canada. It was not a stand against Quebec. We took a look at the agreement, and as Native people, we found the agreement wanting. We were going to put into the Canadian Constitution the concept that there were two fundamental characteristics of Canada that should be entrenched, embedded in the Constitution. It was following from the concept that there are two founding nations and one of those was not the original native people. That was something we could not live with. We could not have further entrenched rights for other people in this country that would make us even less able to compete and try to protect our language and our culture. In Quebec, Native people could not live with a situation where Quebec was being recognized as a distinct society and there was no ability for the Native people there to be able to also protect and have their language and culture flourish. The balance was not there. We have come to a fork in the road 
where if we are going to con continue to be immersed in a status quo, we're just not going to be together very much longer. Or else we are going to be so disgruntled across this country, we're not going to be able to live with each other. We have the ability to create a country that will be envied. We have the potential, but we also have the potential to fragment and create many smaller states, and that's absolutely not necessary. What we have here is the ability to bring together two European peoples, complemented by cultures from all around the world, with an indigenous population that has been here for tens of thousands of years. We have the ability to create a culture that will be different from others because we will take from each other and we will give to each other, but we will not have to crush each other. We will not have to make beggars of any of us. We will not have to make people orphans from their culture. This country was not settled like the United States. I'm a Dene. No conquering army came to the Dene and defeated us. No conquering army came to the Mohawks and defeated them or any other of the people across this country. We willingly, conscientiously, with our eyes open, thought we had enough resources. Being a peaceful people, we arrived at an agreement that provided for our institutions to continue on part of our land and for the institutions of the people coming in to also be placed on our lands. Never in our worst nightmares did we ever imagine what was going to take place. That for nearly 100 years, from 1867 until 1960, we would be so limited in our activity that we would need passes to get off reserves. We couldn't own businesses. We couldn't run for office. We couldn't vote. We never reached the age of majority. We weren't human beings, really. The kind of apologies that Native people have watched being provided to other people has been kind of a joke. We provided our support to most of those people, whether it was the Japanese or others, who were seeking apologies. We are still waiting. We are still waiting for someone to tell us that they apologize for what has happened, what is happening, and how it will never happen again. We want to put in place, once again, our institutions so that we will make decisions for ourselves, so that we will shoulder the responsibility of whether or not an education system is relevant for our people. We are not going to be satisfied with being provided with school boards that fall under someone else's jurisdiction, that fall under someone else's legislation. We are not going to be satisfied with putting Native people on school boards and hiring teachers and using someone else's curriculum and someone else's legislation. We are not going to be satisfied with taking over child care services, social services that belong to somebody else, somebody else's legislation. We want to make our own laws, and we're not talking about municipal governments. Obviously, we have many communities in this country, and we have to have municipal governments. But what we are talking about is, as collectives, as nations, we must have, like Quebec, like Newfoundland, the kind of powers that are typically enjoyed by provinces that are freestanding. We see a time, if this works out, when Native people will again control a large percentage of their original lands. No one is trying to go back. No one is trying to turn any clock back. We have no intention of making any attempt at that. But we do want to nurture and to revitalize 
our culture. We know we cannot govern all of the land that we used to govern. We realize in real politics that we are the minority population in a country that has 26, 27 million people. So we are more than prepared to be practical. We think it is only just that with so few people living in Canada, with all of the land, all of the resources we have, that rather than having the open forest that you have, a large portion, negotiable portion, is back in the hands of native people so that we can have some control over our lives, so that we can create a revenue base that will allow us to have some dignity, a revenue base that will allow us to pay our own way so that we are not always beggars in our own land and watching people from everywhere else get rich on our resources. That's got to end. All across this country, people have been painfully, quietly putting up with atrocities that should never have happened, whether it was residential schools where you could not speak your language and where virtually every value of your culture was being negated, or seeing your land being used by corporations from abroad, stripping your resources, shipping them out of the country and jobs with them, and nothing being returned to you. Patience is coming to an end. The internal suffering is just so great. The loss of life amongst our young people, the internal alcoholism, the glue sniffing, the wife beating, child neglect, all of the social disorders of an oppressed people. Our frustration, our hurt, our pain, our anger, our hate is forced inside. It cannot go on any longer. Imagine it like a pot on a burner that is burning on high constantly and you think, well, there's still some water in the bottom, there's still some water in the pot. The time is here. We must now be sincere. Native people are not a threat to this country. We are not a threat to the sovereignty of Canada. We actually want to reinforce the sovereignty of Canada. We want to walk away from the negotiating table with an agreement that Canada feels good about and Native people feel good about, where we can say that we have strengthened the sovereignty of Canada. We are not a threat. We are only a threat if we continue to be ignored and taken lightly. We are only a threat if people don't understand that it is impossible for people to maintain the frustration level without the kind of actions that we've seen this summer at OCA. We're not trying to get out of Confederation. We never were a part of it. We're still knocking on the door. Let's hope we get a wonderful reception when the door is open. In true Canadian fashion, OCA did not erupt into a violent confrontation that ended in widespread bloodshed. Instead, in true Canadian fashion, George Erasmus was appointed to co-chair the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. It took five years of hard work to complete, but by 1996 it set the course for what has become a truly Canadian solution that attempts to make Canadian First Nations masters of their own fate and yet full partners within our Canadian democracy. That's not to say, as Canadians, we have solved all our problems as we head into the future, not by a long shot. In fact, we still have to settle things way back in our history. In fact, for any observant member of our audience, you may have noticed that tonight we have not made much of Sir John A. Macdonald, that true founding father of Confederation, inasmuch as he was our first Prime Minister and the real brains behind getting Britain to allow us to go free back in 1867. Why ignore Macdonald? Well, we haven't and we won't. Yes, Sir John A. made more than a few political mistakes. Big ones, hurtful ones, ones that cost lives. 
He was no George Washington, who apparently, if you believe the fake news reports, never told a lie. Sir John A. told lots of lies, especially on those rare occasions when he was sober and industrious. As we all found out back in high school, our first Prime Minister was far from a perfect man. Some would argue today that he wouldn't make the cut as second rate if he was still alive today. But that's just it. He's not alive today. Still, when he was alive, his contemporaries were wont to say, better Sir John A. drunk than George Brown sober. No, Canadians do not have American-style heroes, not as politicians, not as bureaucrats, not even as hockey players. We know too much about each other, and we know that whenever we aspire towards perfection, we all fall short. And so we thought we would end tonight's show by offering you one last truly Canadian idea. It's called forgiveness. It emerges from our most famous funeral oration, certainly the most memorable eulogy ever given in Canada. It was uttered by Sir John A.'s most eloquent political enemy, Sir Wilfrid Laurier, and it was given in the House of Commons on June 8, 1891, upon the news that Sir John A. Macdonald had died. I fully appreciate the intensity of the grief which fills the souls of all those who were friends and followers of Sir John Macdonald at the loss of the great leader whose life had been so closely identified with their party, a party upon which he has thrown such brilliancy and luster. We on this side of the House, who were his opponents, who did not believe in his policy, nor in his methods of government, we take a full share of their grief. For the loss which they deplore today is far and away beyond and above the ordinary compass of party range. It is in every respect a great national loss, for he who is no more was in many respects Canada's most illustrious son, and in every sense Canada's foremost citizen and statesman. At the period of life to which Sir John Macdonald had arrived, death, whenever it comes, cannot be said to come unexpected. Some months ago, during the turmoil of the late election, when the country was made aware that on a certain day the physical strength of the veteran premier had not been equal to his courage, and that his intense labor for the time being had prostrated his singularly wiry frame, everybody, with the exception perhaps of his buoyant self, was painfully anxious lest perhaps the angel of death had touched him with his wing. When, a few days ago, in the heat of an angry discussion, the news spread in the House that of a sudden his condition had become alarming, the surging waves of angry discussion were once again hushed, and everyone, friend and foe, realized that this time for a certainty, the angel of death had appeared and had crossed the threshold of his home. Thus, we were not taken by surprise, and although we were prepared for the sad event, Yet it is almost impossible to convince the unwilling mind that it is true that Sir John MacDonald is no more, that the chair we see vacant shall remain forever vacant, that the face so familiar in this Parliament for the last 40 years shall be heard no more, whether in solemn debate or in pleasant, mirthful tones. In fact, the place of Sir John MacDonald in this country the fate of this country can continue without him. His loss overwhelms us. For my part, I say with all truth, his loss overwhelms me, and it also overwhelms his parliament, as if, it's indeed, as if indeed one of the institutions of the land had given way. Sir John MacDonald now belongs to the ages, and it can be said with certainty that the career which has just been closed is one of the most remarkable careers of this century. It would be premature at this time to attempt to fix or anticipate what will be the final judgment of history upon him. But there were in his career and in his life features so prominent and so conspicuous that already they shine with a glow which time cannot alter, which even now appear before the eye such as they will appear to the end of history. I think it can be asserted that for the supreme art of governing men, 
Sir John MacDonald was gifted as few men in any land or in any age were gifted. Gifted with the most high of all qualities. Qualities which would have made him famous were ever exercised, and which would have shone all the more conspicuously the larger the theatre. The fact that he could congregate together elements the most heterogeneous and blend them into one compact party, and to the end of his life keep them steady under his hand, is perhaps altogether unprecedented. The fact that during all those years he retained unimpaired not only the confidence, but the devotion, the ardent devotion and affection of his party, is evidence that beside those higher qualities of statesmanship to which we were the daily witnesses, he was also endowed with those inner, subtle, indefinable graces of soul which win and keep the hearts of men. As to his statesmanship, it is written in the history of Canada. It may be said without any exaggeration whatever that the life of Sir John MacDonald from the date he entered Parliament is the history of Canada for he was connected and associated with all the events, all the facts, which brought Canada from the position Canada then occupied. The position of two small provinces, having nothing in common but a common allegiance, united by a bond of paper, and united by nothing else to the present state of development which Canada has reached. Although my political views compel me to say that in my judgment, his actions were not always the best that could have been taken in the interest of Canada. Although my conscience compels me to say that of late he had imputed to his opponents, to his opponents, motives as to which I must say in my heart he was misconceived. Yet I am only too glad here to sink these differences, and to remember only the great services he has performed for our country. To remember that his actions always displayed great originality of views, unbounded fertility of resources a high level of intellectual conceptions, and above all, a far-reaching vision beyond the event of the day, and still higher, permeating the whole, a broad patriotism, a devotion to Canada's welfare, Canada's advancement, and Canada's glory. The life of a statesman is always an arduous one, and very often it is an ungrateful one. More often than otherwise, his actions do not mature until he is in his grave, not so, however, in the case of Sir John MacDonald. His career had been a singularly fortunate one. His reverses were few and of short duration. He was fond of power, and in my judgment, if I may say so, that may be the turning point of the judgment of history. He was, not, he was fond of power, and he never made any secret of it. Many times we have heard him avow from the floor of this parliament and his ambition in this respect was gratified as perhaps no other man's ambition ever was. In my judgment, even the career of William Pitt can hardly compare with that of Sir John MacDonald in this respect. For though Pitt, moving in a higher sphere, had to deal with problems greater than our problems, yet I doubt it in the intricate management of a party, William Pitt had to contend with difficulties equal to those that Sir John MacDonald had to contend with. In his death, too, he seems to have been singularly happy. Twenty years ago, I was told by one who at the time was a close personal and political friend of Sir John MacDonald that in the intimacy of his domestic circle, he was fond of repeating that his end would be as the end of Lord Chatham, that he would be carried away from the floor of the Parliament to die. How true that vision into the future was, we now know, for we saw him to the last. With enfeebled health and declining strength, struggling on the floor of Parliament until the hand of fate pinned him to his bed to die, and thus to die with his armour on was probably his ambition. Sir, death is the supreme law, although we see it every day in every form, although session after session we have seen it in this Parliament striking right and left without any discrimination as to age or station. Yet the ever-recurring spectacle does not in any way remove the bitterness of the sting. Death always carries with it an incredible sea of pain. But the one thing sad in death is that which is involved in the word separation. Separation from all we have in life. 
This is what makes death so poignant when it strikes a man with intellect in, of intellect in middle age. But when death is the natural termination of a full life in which he who has disappeared had given full measure of his capacity, has performed everything required from him and more, the sadness of death is not for him that goes, but for those who love him and remain. In this way, I am sure the Canadian people will extend unbounded sympathy to the friends of Sir John MacDonald, to his surviving children, and above all, to his companion in life. Mr. Speaker, one after another, we see those who have been instrumental in bringing Canada to its present state removed from among us. Today, we suffer the loss of him, who we all unite in saying was the foremost Canadian of his time, and who held the largest place in Canadian history. Only last week was buried in the city of Montreal, another son of Canada, one who had at one time been a tower of strength to the Liberal Party, one who will ever be remembered as one of the noblest, purest, and greatest characters that Canada has ever produced, Sir Antoine-Aimé Dorian. Sir Antoine-Aimé Dorian had not been in favor of Confederation, not that he was opposed to the principle, but he believed that the union of these provinces at that day was premature. When, however, confederation had become a fact, he gave the best of his mind and heart to make it a success. It may indeed happen, sir, when the Canadian people see the ranks thus gradually reduced and thinned of those upon whom they have been in the habit of relying for guidance, that a feeling of apprehension will creep into the heart lest perhaps the institutions of Canada may be imperiled. Before the grave of him who above all was the father of confederation, let not grief be barren grief, but let grief be coupled with the resolution, the determination, that the work in which the Liberals and the Conservatives, in which Brown and Macdonald united, shall not perish, but that though united Canada may be deprived of the services of her greatest men, yet still Canada shall and will live. Yes, we know. We all love to hate our politicians. And we often have good reason to be disappointed by them. But whether it was Sir John A. or Mackenzie King or Lester Pearson, we presume some Legion members still get a tad riled when they see the red ensign. It's also good to remember what Lady Aberdeen, Nellie McClung, and Agnes MacPhail, and every woman in this room knows. They were only men imperfect, contradictory, impossible men, yet sometimes great men who all loved sometimes a great nation. Sometimes a great nation was performed tonight by Francis Mawson, Lois LaSalle, Danielle Paul, and Roger Paul. It was written and produced by Barry Conway for the Station Keepers, a local volunteer group who support the Opiongo Readers Theatre, and other local groups dedicated to preserving and promoting our culture and heritage, up here in the Madawaska Valley, and out there wherever Canada Day gets celebrated. If you liked our show, please don't be shy when you pass Philip the Donation Jar on your way out. And for our podcast audience who listen to us on the Opiongo line, let your friends know all about us. From all of us here, I'm Karen Filipkowski, Wishing you a happy but not too exuberant Canada Day. Remember your Canadians, sober yet industrious, quiet Canadians. Other than that, good night and good luck.
outdoor living should be livable. 